Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. You cannot trust people who cook as badly as that. After Finland, it is the country with the worst food. The words of that notable culinary critic Jacques Chirac. Of course, Monsieur Chirac's not exactly alone. It's commonly said, even by the English themselves, that English cooking is the worst in the world. And that's George Orwell in In Defence of English Cooking. So, Tom Holland and I have come to The Rest is History, not to bury English cooking but to praise it, at least I hope so. And our guest, Tom, well, would you like to introduce our guest? Our guest is Penn Vogler, who has written the most sensational book on um, the entire history of British food. It's called Scoff. And because it's about Britain, the subtitle is A History of Food and Class. Everything's about class in Britain. Everything in uh, Britain is about class. And um, it's an absolute feast, not just of historical information, but of facts for pub quizzes. So, Dominic, just to try a couple out. I know you've read it because it was oh, well, one of your Sunday Times. Some time ago. Years of the book, ago. wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so what is Penn talking about here? In 1748, the French government banned the cultivation of what on the grounds that they caused leprosy? Artichokes. Potatoes. Potatoes. Okay, and Richard Bradley, the professor of botany at Cambridge, said in yeah. 1728 that what was agreeable to look at, but was definitely dangerous. <laughs> um, um, carrots, sheep, uh, pen, um, pen. Come on in and put him out of his misery. <laughs> um, the the cousin of potatoes, it's tomatoes. We're not very good in Britain at kind of um, in absorbing vegetables from you know foreign countries. I'm doing that with like little um, little <laughs> quote marks around the foreign. We're very happy about it, getting new meat on board, like turkey. But when it comes to things like tomatoes and potatoes, it's taken centuries of us to get used to them. So how long did it take for us to kind of get to use the potatoes? Because we have a question here from um, from Jordan Carr, who says, my girlfriend, who is Latvian Russian, and her friend joke that British food is just made up of different variations of potato dishes and proceeded to laugh at jacket potatoes with beans. I don't see what's wrong with jacket potatoes, <laughs> except for the beans, actually, which is... Um, which it's a bit I think rich being criticised for bad food by Russians, I think. <laughs> <laughs> by Latvians. I've heard, of, I've heard they had potato lacquers, yeah. Um, we're quite keen on potatoes, but I think they're not the only... Yeah, I think, that's, I think that is slightly harsh, actually, because we've had a long uh, and rather vexed history with potatoes, and we've, we've come to love them. But I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that the, the basis. Oh gosh! I mean, they were introduced into the. Well, they were introduced to Europe, weren't they? From um, the you know when the the Spanish first went to South and America and Central America. So a mere kind of four or five hundred years, really. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but Penn, is, do, you, do you agree with uh, Jacques Chirac? Are we the worst country after Finland for food? I mean, a lot of our foreign listeners will be laughing at this and saying, "Of course you are," but they are quite wrong, in my view. What do, what do you think? 
It's so funny. I was in my early 20s. I went to go and teach English in what was then Czechoslovakia. And I thought, you know, I was in the markets of Czechoslovakia. You couldn't get fresh food anywhere at the time. I'm sure you can now. Um, everything was kind of fried cheese, pickled cabbage, um, delicious in its own way. But they all knew for a fact my uh, students that English food was the like the laughing stock of the world they'd never been to England they'd never had it but it was just a fact that they kind of learned somewhere and I think that's a very post-World War II reputation probably oh, really that late yeah probably probably kind of richly deserved in fact and all sorts of things kind of got together in World War II you know post-rationing and all the rest of it to to make our food quite bad but um I think it's probably is it harsh? I think it's probably harsh now because, you know, all sorts of people, all sorts of gastro pubs and chefs have done all kinds of extraordinary things with, um, you know, some kind of English dishes. But for, for a few decades, yeah, exactly. But for a few decades, I think it might have been fair. The first, Ray, Raymond Postgate, when he introduced the Good Food Guide in the 1950s, said, um, he said, yes, it does look a bit strange. Like, I'm trying to pretend that there is good food in Britain, but you've got to start somewhere. And maybe if we start encouraging people to recommend to each other restaurants that they liked, maybe it will just help us you know, increase a kind of food culture. Have you read any of those old, old good food guides? Because I did when yes. I was writing my book on the 80s, even in the yes. 80s. And a lot of the entries in the 80s, I mean, these are the good food guides. And, and it will say, this is the best restaurant in Newcastle. Don't order the vegetables. They're absolutely <laughs> atrocious or something. You know, these these descriptions of these, uh, it sounds absolutely ghastly. And that's kind of how I remember it, actually. 70s, 80s. But Penn, you food. think that's because of the war? Because of... <laughs> rationing because the habit of cooking gets broken or, or what what happens oh i mean i think it, no i think when i say post-war i think we have a very sort of particular post-war diet which but i think actually no it goes it goes back longer than that um i think if you go right back to kind of where it all went wrong it is in a way it was probably when because we seem to be going the right way in the kind of long 18th century that's when the english palette is laid down when you have female housekeepers who were um, producing, you know, local, locally grown good food, lots of vegetables, lots of meat, always lots of meat. And then I think what really goes wrong is Britain becomes obsessed with kind of social climbing. And one of the ways to socially climb is to have French food and everything is French food. All the focus goes on French food in that 19th century. So it's the fault of the French. Yeah. No, it's a fault of Dominic us Perrin, trying yeah. to this be the French. <laughs> I think we can end the podcast here, can't we? I, mean, I yeah, think we've established yeah, it's yeah. all... Um... <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a fault of British um, British focus, us trying to kind of imitate French food in a way that just probably didn't suit quite, uh, quite sort of modest English kitchens. So if we could dial it sort of back in time, yeah. is there a point at which you can say there is a British cuisine and if so when is that point and what is the food i think if you look at the family dinner that mrs bennett is trying to cook for darcy and bingley at the end of pride and prejudice um that is probably your british cuisine and she's very proud of the fact that her venison is really good the partridges are better than the 
you know, anything that the French chef that, um, of Mr. Darcy could produce. She has the right kind of soups and they're probably made from, she doesn't say, but they're probably made of, there's probably a fresh pea soup and then a, you know, a white, a soup made from chicken or something. Um, and you might have duck and peas a lot often though in those years. We do have lots of vegetables, but they sort of come with the, with the meat and they sort of get forgotten about and hidden. So we think there aren't very many of them, but people did eat them. So I think that's probably when we could, it could have got better, you know, from the yeah. 19th, from the, from that kind of long 18th century onwards. And somehow the focus just got, got went wrong. Think, thinking about, about, um, the relationship with France in the 18th into the Regency period. I mean, it is a staple of, British self-congratulation that we eat better, that we have roast beef and all the French have is kind of scrawny vegetables. Yeah, yeah. Soup there's some maigre, kind of amazing yes. passage you quote in the, um, in the book about, was it Thackeray saying that, <laughs> that if you've got an equal number of Britons fed on beef and Frenchmen fed on <laughs> epicene cheese, the plucky Brits would yes, it is hold the feel. He's probably ribbing us, you know, <laughs> yes. to agree, because I think he is sitting in a French restaurant in Paris as he's kind of pontificating about how brilliant French, British but Hogarth, food is. Hogarth, that, that famous cartoon yeah. of, of, uh, yes. of Calais, where there's, yes. a, you know. But this yeah. is all to do with beef, isn't it? And, and that's what's really interesting is that the 18th century is the point where the roast beef of old England yeah. is established as this. What's all that about? I think it's partly about cows getting bigger is but as learn the kind of agricultural revolution and um, breeders figuring out that you can breed if you can read breed, breed racehorses you can breed livestock and so over about 200 years the weight of cows probably doubled really but i think we've always been quite keen on our beef you know we're beef eaters shakespeare talks about you know beef eating brits and uh, the english rather and all the rest of it and I think there has been an obsession with, and a pride, but an obsession with beef. And like you say, Tom, the on kind of one level, we love to kind of mock the French because their peasants are poor, they can't afford meat, they're having this pathetic soup maker, which is, you know, like a just a vegetable soup. Um, and actually at that, you know, in the early 18th century, quite a lot of people thought that English peasants were better fed than French peasants um, in the same way that, and, and, you know, obviously those assumptions change. And now, you know, people think that in, in France, people are fed better than in England. So, so what's, what's the role of the industrial revolution in that? Because that's another kind of vague idea I had is that we're eating well and the industrial revolution comes and that's what really torpedoes the traditions of British food, because they get lost when people move from the country to the, the, the towns. Is that not true? I think it is true, but I think it's probably tangentially true. I think it's partly true because of the enclosures. So when people stop having ground that they can grow food on, that makes it much harder. And you know that idea of the kind of that we don't have a peasant cuisine in the way that France or other countries have peasant cuisines. I think that partly gets destroyed by the enclosures and all kind of just, you know, picking people up off, um, off the land. But I think when you have the industrial revolution, yes, people go into, to, uh, factories. Yes, people go into urban areas. And yes, there are problems of distribution, which, you know, the railways and everything help sort out. But there shouldn't, because there's also a rising middle class, because there's also a rising wealth 
that should have offset the yeah you know the, the kind of availability but then the french menus come in yeah but then the french menus come in so if so, you look at something like the way that kind of dickens and his family would would be eating in the 1840s oh, for example horrible detail that you've got about <laughs> and this this segues very neatly into another theme yeah um her, her culinary pièce de résistance would be rabbit curry smothered oh, in white yes, sauce yes yes so no, no wonder he ran that. off white, white sauce. sauce yes oh in a curry yeah. Over curry, yeah. So no wonder yeah. Dickens ran off with Ellen Turner. But food and Dickens, <laughs> Penn, you've written about food and Dickens a lot. And yeah. uh, Dickens's books are full of... So are the, uh, the, the food they have in Dickens, is that fantasy or is that what people ate at the time, genuinely? I think sometimes it gets a bit baroque, you know, when he kind of, he has a a stew which might have 10 million things in it, including cow heel and, spa, you know, sprue, sprue grass, which is asparagus. I think he's pretty much describing what most people would have eaten. And what's interesting about Dickens is it's very unfriend. She isn't trying to kind of cope with the, you know, the kind of the Frenchman just in his literature, but not in his not in his life. I mean, fam- I guess there are two famous meals, aren't there? There's um, Oliver Twist asking for more in the workhouse. Yes. And being hungry is kind of the essence of everything that Dickens is appalled by. Because yeah. the other famous one is um, in Christmas Carol with Scrooge turning up and a turkey. buying a turkey. With a, with a turkey, so yes. Always acceptable. Talk us, so, so talk us through about the history of the turkey, because that's a really, really interesting one. Well, the turkey was extraordinary. As I say, whenever meat comes, anything kind of meaty comes into this country, everybody adopts it immediately. Um, it comes in the 18th century, in the, sorry, the 17th century, the 16th century with a trader called William Strickland. And, um, we don't know exactly the year, but he adopts the, uh, the image of a turkey on his kind of coat of arms. <laughs> He's allowed to coat, coat of arms as he becomes kind of more and more ennobled. And when he comes in, there's still this kind of division between landfowl, this idea that if you're a farm, a farmyard fowl doesn't quite have the status of meat that you hunt. So, um, you know, going back to kind of 1066 and William and all this kind of idea of the venison is the best meat, it's the most noble meat and grouse and partridge, anything that you hunt somehow gives you the status of kind of nobility. And, you know, that. Um, whereas if you come, if something comes from a farmyard, chicken or turkey, it has a s- slightly less status. But having said that, the turkey is very acceptable to everybody. And it comes at a time when the population is growing. There probably isn't quite enough meat to go round because the, the, you know, beef hasn't yet done the thing that we were talking about where cows haven't yet kind of doubled in weight. And it's very welcome. But it, it comes in such a way where you can, you know, it's not seen as something which is just kind of for the aristocracy. So far, a farm, a farmer might eat it or a kind of small landowner or a yeoman. Um, and it gets adopted and it's good in the middle of, uh, winter, you know, when not, there's not much else around and it becomes our kind of our Christmas meat. How big a role does Dickens play in that? I think Dickens, it's always eaten around Christmas. But then meat is always eaten around Christmas. Yeah, because they eat beef, don't yes. they? I mean, that's yeah, the... you might eat beef around Christmas, you might eat venison. Because before before breeders had learned to keep 
animals alive, literally, over the winter. They had to slaughter most of them in November or December um, because otherwise the animals would be competing with us, you know, for very, very sparse uh, kind of cereal and grain resources over the winter. So most animals get eaten around Christmas. And turkey, and but yeah, Dickens kind of anchors it to the Christmas day. So he has this beautiful description, this brilliant description of, um, you know, this lovely big turkey and Christmas pudding. But, but that's the thing that the, re- the reform Scrooge brings him. Whereas the meat they're actually going to have before... Uh, you know, before kind of Scrooge sees the light, is going to be a goose. And I was go- going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. You see, to me, a goose is... In- I had a goose at Christmas. Oh, lucky a you. A goose is infinitely yeah. superior to turkey, in my view. Yeah, yeah, not, not then. Yeah. So why did people... So what, there was a sort of turn again. There was a period, wasn't there, when the goose kind of dropped out. Totally. Goose, yeah. I didn't know anyone had a goose in the 70s or the yeah. 80s. Yeah. And now they're the quite- goose has come back as a bit of a status symbol, I think. I think so. They're quite tricky to cook, go- geese. Very fatty. But- they're very fatty. Yeah, your whole house knows about it for a few days afterwards. Yeah. I think when you so cook we had a goose. goose for two of us, and when I say two of us, me and a and a, and a nine year old, because my wife doesn't eat meat, so it was right. incredibly self indulgent, yes. but very very satisfying. Pretty, did you carry it back yes. from the market and did an urchin knock your top <laughs> top hat off with a snowball? As you... Yeah, I, I I got an urchin. I shouted out of the window. <laughs> what day is it? Christmas Day. Oh, here's Humble. a shilling. <laughs> yeah, that's normal life in Chipping Norton, yeah. Tom. <laughs> But actually, what you, what you should have done is done what Mrs. Cratchit did and send it to the baker to be cooked because then you wouldn't have all the fattiness in your own house. So I've got a question about that. Did people, because you see that a lot in Dickens, that people will buy a pie and they'll take it to the bakery or they'll... Yeah. So, so how does that work? If you don't live with the cook, if you don't have a big kitchen, you, take, you buy stuff and you send it to a bakehouse and then go and get it? Because you don't have an oven, basically, Um you know, the Great Fire of London, probably because you, everybody had to use massive, not communal ovens, but uh, bakery ovens to cook their things because most people were too poor to afford their own ovens. And, you know, um, you know, pat a cake, pat a cake, baker's man. Oh, yeah you, know, yeah. you know, you prick it with pea because you need to mark it. You need to say this is I would say, yeah, my pie. <laughs> Get off everybody <laughs> <Right>. else. <laughs> well, pen, pen. I reckon that's the first course done. Um, so we should take a break uh, and then come back and have the second course. Uh, and Penn, I would like love to go back to um, that rabbit curry cooked by Catherine Dickens. <laughs> oh, you would And wouldn't. ask you about curry because <laughs> yes. that also has an intriguing history. So we'll come back and we will be talking curry. Welcome back to The Rest is History uh, with me, Dominic Sambrook, Tom Holland, and our guest, Penn Vogler. And Tom is very keen to talk about curry. Tom, please. Because curry is now basically our national dish, isn't it? And essentially, it's much, much older than I had realised. It's much older, say, than fish and chips. It's older than in Britain, yes. Just tell us about, about the antiquity of curry and its relationship to gravy. Oh, yeah. So the first recipe for curry in a British cookbook is probably Hannah Glass in 1747. And if you compare it to fish and chips, fish and chips didn't get together really as, in, as a kind of married couple until the probably 1900s. But... Um, 
So Hannah Glass is writing a recipe for curry. It's not that nice, to be honest. Uh, it's kind of curry. Most of the heat comes from white pepper. But it's have you okay. Cooked it? Have you I have it? cooked it. Yeah, I have cooked it. But it's interesting because um, some of the other things I've cooked and compare it to, if you go back to very early um, kind of medieval food, a lot of that is uh, is flavoured by the tastes of spices that the crusaders brought back and all the things that we put into curries now like galangal you know ginger long pepper um you know black pepper and all that stuff not chili obviously because that's a new world thing they were being used and enjoyed by our kind of wealthier medieval forebears so a curry a curry is is kind of closer to the tastes of of english medieval food than, than fish and chips. Yes. In, oh, yes, I think so. I mean, I think English medieval food is a little bit, it's a little bit halfway between a curry and sort of North African uh, right. tagines. You know, it's a little bit more sweet and sour in a way. Um, but some of those, you know, medieval recipes do feel quite contemporary, um, unlike Hannah Glass's curry. But but Hannah Glass was cooking at a time when a lot of people were working for the British, you know, the or the, the East Indian, Indian Company, going to India, falling in love with this amazing food and wanting to taste it back home. And people were selling curry powder in kind of coffee shops and just starting to kind of roll out the idea of curry from about the sort of early, early late 1700s. Can I pick you up on something you just said, which is mm. about the medieval cooking being... Mm. I mean, that's fascinating that, that the sort of... I mean, obviously, we're talking about people at the top, I assume. Mm. Um, right at the top, so, yes. So what they're eating is a sort of, you know, somewhere between a curry and, you know, a Moroccan tagine or something. Yeah. But the question then is, at what point does that fall out of the equation? So why does British food acquire this reputation for unspiced blandness when yes. clearly it was very spicy in 1400 or 1500 or whenever? I think um, the Civil War probably um, is probably, if you want, at one point that probably gives us the best civil, you know, the best point because the Puritans were very against spice. They were very against kind of, you know, uh, this is what they called an abominable brose, which is probably a kind of potage of spiced fruit. And um, they thought it was papist, basically. They, they thought it was papist. They thought it was basically a waste of money, I think. <laughs> the poor should be spending their hard-earned money on something decent. I don't know, bread and beer or something. Bread and... Bread and meat. Water. Bread and water, <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 you know... Bread and pure, Bibles. Or puritanical tracts, you know, like the flying eagle or whatever they're called. Um, but after... And I think... But it's partly... It's not just the Puritans. I think also it is that um, tastes are changing because, like like you said, it was only the... In the kind of Tudor period, it was the very, very kind of top families who were just determining that kind of taste. And then you get you then you get input from housekeepers from much more kind of when you get the middling sort I suppose when you get this kind of middle class that begins to grow up and it tends to be the person who's in control of the menu is probably female she's probably a housekeeper and she's probably going to look around her much more locally for food than kind of expensive spices. Pen, when when do cocker pigs? <laughs> I, are you familiar with the cocker pig, Dominic? 
Um, I, I've probably I've erased that from my memory. Well, I googled it, and I, I wish <laughs> yeah. I wish that I had. What's a cock? Is it a bit like a turducken? Do you know what a turducken yes. is? Yes, a bit, <laughs> a, a bit, but it's sequential rather than. Yeah. Oh. A, a, so you get you get the front of a cock, right? A cockerel, nice. Yes, and you stick it onto the back of a uh, a small pig, or the other way round, or the other way round. Yes, you can well, do have, you, have you tried that pen? Have you cooked that? Because that was Richard II's favourite food, wasn't it? And he, he'd have, serve it gilded, covered yes, in gold leaf. Yes, yes. That's sounds, good. I, I yeah. really, really want to try that. What? How do they do that? that? So they'd have a big tray or something, and they'd have yeah. the, the the front of a cock and the back of a pig. More yeah. like more likely the front of a pig and the back of a cock, a back of a hen or cock or something, and they'd right. sew it onto. You'd sew it on. Wow. And that's then, something from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> but is that another thing the yes. Puritans ruined? <laughs> yeah, I think that's quite in in um, on the kind of the most kind of highest tables in medieval times. They loved things that just looked different. You Weird. know, they they looked yeah. they loved kind of display and things to look. So odd. they would actually really like you know Heston. You know, Heston Blumenthal does his meat fruit. Meat fruits, yes. I think meat fruit comes from medieval. Yeah. So, so actually, that because uh, I wondered whether he was pushing that a bit too far, but it doesn't sound like he is at all. Like actually, no, he's not going think, far enough. I think his recipes are, are based on recipes that he's found, actually. Yeah. But they love things to kind of look like hedgehogs or. Um, and that presumably that would be an international taste at that time. Would it? I mean, if it's, it's being served to the, the king, presumably these are the kind of flamboyant things that are going on in royal tables. A lot of Across our, Christendom. yeah, I think a lot of our kind of our highest tastes come from either Italy or Spain at that, at that time. You know, things like ice cream when they, when they kind of come into this country, come via, you know, That's Spain, Italian, then Italy. It? Yeah, yeah, Spain, then Italy, and then, right. um, and then up here, chocolate, coffee, all those things we kind of absorb from there. And do you think the, the the fact that um, Britain's an island and we have sent ships around the world, how influential has that been on the patterns of our taste? Are we unusual to the degree that our national cuisine you know, is kind of shaped by influences from across the world? I think we are very absorptive. Um, what we're quite good at doing is taking some tastes like tea, for example, yes, and course. kind of British Britishifying them or ang- anglicizing it. Tea, cocoa is the same. Is the same. So, if you well, if you look at tea, you know it first was grown in China. Our trade with China was a bit patchy. It was quite unreliable, and so somebody had to go and steal some seeds and some plants of tea. Um, from China and plant them in good British, in inverted commas, plantations in India. And that's when the Indian, you know, kind of tea, tea plantation yeah, and then it takes off. Yeah. It kind of powers the rise of the Raj and the it powers American the rise Revolution of the and, and the French it, yeah. Revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the question with tea, though, Penn, surely, the question that I think hangs over so much world history, America... Found its founding story is throwing a, is about yes. tea, throwing yes. tea into the harbour. America is an offshoot of Britain, this great tea drinking nation. Yeah. And yet, as all our listeners will know, 
You go to America, this fantastic, dynamic, rich country, and it is simply impossible to get a proper cup of tea. I think it's a political repudiation. <laughs> they have long political memories. I don't know. I, I've no idea why. You know that thing where you ask for a cup of, a cup of tea, tea and they give you a tea bag and a cup of hot water? Warm, it's basically if you're lucky. Yeah. Make it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> What's yes. like that? And lemon. <laughs> Yeah, the lemon. That's just pontified, isn't it? Dominic, don't go abroad. It's a terrible mistake. No, I mean, I I go, I genuinely, (laughs) do you know, can you, I mean, this is, I'm not even exaggerating this for the purposes of the podcast. I genuinely take tea bags when I go on holiday. I I mean, my wife thinks it's ludicrous, but we always travel now with colossal quantities of tea. Have you come across biscuit tea? No. What's biscuit tea? It's, It's the single greatest British cultural achievement since Sergeant Pepper. Is it tea in the form of a biscuit or... Yorkshire tea, and it's just a hint of biscuit. <laughs> it's, oh, man, it's, it's yeah, so... you get a, you get a hint of biscuit in my in my house oh, by dipping so your biscuit anyway, in the say, tea. So is that like you've dipped your biscuit in the tea and you've left it a bit too yeah. long and it's kind of crumbled yeah. into the tea? Yeah. So whenever I despair of Britain, I I, I have brew myself a cup of that and wow, all my confidence in the country is restored. I want before we get into the questions from the audience. I also want to ask Penn a question about pies. What is it about Britain and pies? Because I think the pie is our great culinary achievement. Obviously, the pie is very unfashionable now, which is sad to me anyway. But why are we so good at pies compared with other people? They don't really have them, do they? <laughs> John Bull asks. <laughs> I don't know why we're so good at them compared with other people, but uh, we are good at pies, and I think um, probably because. Partly because we've always been good at meat and a pie, sticking a bit of meat in a pie is a good way for it not to dry out. You know, if you're okay. going to put it in the oven, if it's going to be massive. So Hannah Glass, her, she of the early curry recipe has this recipe for a Yorkshire pie. And that's where this myth of the turducken comes from, because that's actually, I haven't seen a recipe for that. But she does have the turkey and then inside it, the duck, and then inside it, the capon, and then inside it, the blood of partridge or whatever. And that's and, in a pie. Um, and that's in, and with stuffing all the way through. So when you cut into it, you should have nice kind of little coloured layers. You know, you might have a, a green stuffing, a red stuffing. So, and that would keep... You could put it in the oven and you'd keep it all, you know, you'd keep it from drying out. And so our early pies, like our early pasties, you might have a venison pasty and they might be made with really solid rye flour, pretty heavy. Um, you'd plug it, you'd make your pasty, let it cool, plug it with um, butter, so like a tin, so, you know, to keep the air out and it will keep for ages. But you might not even eat the pastry. It might be just too hard and too solid, but you'd still have the bit of venison left in the middle. And so we use pies partly as a kind of um, a storage jar and you can decorate them beautifully. You know, like there's in Cornwall. early, like in what, Cornwall. Like in Cornwall. Yeah, exactly. Pasty. Exactly, the Cornish pasty, whatever that used yes. to be well didn't pasta used to have different a pasta was a whole meal wasn't it jam at one end and vegetables and stuff at the other isn't that right and t- tin miners had them yeah but a pasty can be anything you know there's i've got this lovely uh book that i talk about in in my book um with it's the cornish federation of women's institutes and in 1934 they 
poll all their members and get them to send in their pasty recipes. And you might have a rabbit pasty or a windy pasty. And I can't quite remember what that is. What's, yeah, you might windy put, pasty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, prob- it's probably spinach or something. Yeah. <laughs> and you might put dates in it. You might put herring in it. But oh, what herring. you, but herring. what you, herring, herring, herring is step oh, too yes. fast. Okay, well, a question from, does it, yeah. on, on the topic of, of, of herring, here's a question, and it's a topical one, bearing in mind um, the, the, the Brexit agreements about fish. Casper uh, mm. uh, asks, why does fish play such a small role and has it always been like that? So we're surrounded by fish. We're surrounded by sea. We have so many rivers. It's probably because fish was popish. You know, fish, oh, right. yeah, probably before, before the Reform, it was probably a Protestant thing, before the Reformation. Um, you had these enforced fast days where you couldn't eat meat or milk or eggs. And about a, in really early medieval time, about a third of your year or more, you know, if you were in the church or particularly holy, you'd be, you'd be on a fast day. Um, but fish, or they might, they were sometimes called fish days and flesh days. So if you were fasting in inverted commas, you might be able to eat fish because it was allowed. And, um, and I think, Fasting wasn't very popular. When you get to the Reformation, it's a very confusing time for people. They don't know what they're allowed to eat. So on the whole, they decide that they're going to eat meat rather than fish. Thanks very much, because that's a bit popish. Also, I think a lot of our fish was salted. So you'd have had salted fish, salted codfish. I've got one recipe for codfish from the 14th century that says, beat it for an hour you know, <laughs> to yeah, tenderize okay. it. You know, it didn't have the greatest reputation. And um, and I think people just kind of use this as an excuse to, to kind of veer towards meat because meat is the status thing. We're all pretty upset. You know, we're pretty obsessed by status and meat means you've got money or land to show that status. Since we're talking about status, maybe we should talk about class because it plays such a huge part in your book. So let's get into dinner, tea, yeah. supper. Oh, yes. Um, now, I, I was brought up, I think my parents said lunch and dinner kind of interchangeably for the the midday mid sort of meal. And then tea in the evening, I suppose a lot of children would have tea in the evening because that's seen as slightly infantilizing, isn't it, to have tea, I, I suppose. But Tom is very much a supper man, which I regard as foppish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I am a fop. I'm not going to for it. Where do you, what's your position? I mean, you must, I know you're trying to be an objective observer, but you must have a personal position on this as well as a historian's one. Well, my position is middle-class northerner. <laughs> so my position, which is probably why I'm so interested in class anyway, because when I grew up, my parents had lunch in the middle of the day and we had tea when we were kids, but then dinner as we were older in the evening. But none of my friends at school did. They all had dinner in the middle of the day. We went to Yorkshire schools, you know, I went to school in Leeds. So we had dinner ladies and school dinners. Yeah. Um, and then we would have dinner in the evening. We kind of didn't see any... No, two dinners. Yeah, you have two dinners. What's not to love? <laughs> yeah, you're like a hobbit with their two breakfasts. <laughs> but, but you know the, the meal that's uncontroversial... Is breakfast. Is, is breakfast. Yes, it's the only one. We have a question from Richard Banks. Uh, which I know you're going to be able to answer, uh, which is when did the full English breakfast first appear and what did it include? But let's just, uh, just break the, when did the, when did the elements of the, of the full English breakfast start to appear? Well, the elements have probably always been there, but they've been in different parts of 
either the British Isles or different parts of the world. So the world, you know, if you talk about kedgeree, for example, which was a very kind of Victorian breakfast, but the things like, uh, you know, your black pudding and your sausages and particular ways of kind of doing eggs or something. Some of those are, and porridge, obviously, some of those come from Scotland, Wales, um, and they were kind of brought together with some of the best kind of elements of the home farm, your home produce on the Edwardian country house table. So this idea that the full English breakfast has this really long history is probably not true. You have a full, you might have a school, full Scottish breakfast, you know. What's a Ken Elm Bigby? Oh, yes, of course. He likes collops and eggs, doesn't he? Two poached yes. eggs. Yes, with collops Pot. of pure bacon are not bad for breakfast. They're not bad so that's, for that's breakfast. That's 17th century, surely. 17th century. That is yeah, 17th century. He invented century. the wine bottle, didn't he? As well, I think. Quite yes. a lad. Yes, yes, he was I, a great inventor. That's true, that's true. But if you talk about that, I would just say that was B&E. But if you're talking but, about the full English, the yes, seven deadly guess. sins, the, the kind of groaning plate, you know. The Costa but, del Sol, as I yeah. was thinking. I mean, there was so, there was so much in, in, in your book that, that kind of made me salivate. But this was one I particularly noted, and it was um, somebody called George Borrow in 1862. Oh, yeah. In Welsh, Wales. Wild Wales. Pot of hare, mm. ditto of trout, pot of prepared shrimps, dish of plain shrimps, tins of sardines, beautiful beefsteak, eggs, muffin, large loaf, butter... Not forgetting capital T, there's a breakfast. There is a breakfast for you. When did yeah. that go out of fashion? I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why has it gone out of fashion? Yeah. I think we've got very focused on very specific uh, um, elements of the breakfast. It's a bit like the afternoon tea. As soon as it starts becoming a thing that cafes or hotels offer, it has to become much more straightforward for them because... It's it's just too difficult, isn't it, for most kind of cafes and hotels to offer all that stuff. Well, you sort of read about people having steak at breakfast. I mean, they'd have a, they'd yeah, have definitely. steak a lot at breakfast, wouldn't they? Mm. You never see that now, generally, no, unless you were having no, something incredibly no. extravagant. Or pork bones, you know, pork uh, ribs and boiled eggs or something. Yeah, but I think on the whole, before that kind of Edwardian breakfast, I suppose, or kind of late Victorian breakfast, you might have a big old solid breakfast if you were travelling or going off to go hunting for the day or working for the day. But on the whole, most people would just eat bread, toast, cake, maybe, you know, pound cake or something like that. Um, if you were very grand, you might eat, have French bread, which was more like a brioche. It was kind of enriched with egg and butter and quite delicious, really. When I um, went on my French exchange, oh. I was dumbstruck to find them drinking beer at breakfast. Oh, which that's I thought was, very interesting. Which I thought was just wrong. Um, but that's what they did for, in Shakespeare's time, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. At what point Small did beer. we stop having alcohol so early? Or indeed, we, as a sort of as a yeah. standard drink, you unless know. you're in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The quick trip to Weatherspoons. I think yeah. I think there's an overlap with tea, um, and you know you'd have to have alcohol before before you had tea, and you didn't know that boiling water would make your water safe, unless you had a very safe way well, you know, a well where you knew the water was really pure. You'd have to have alcohol. It would be you know it'd be called small beer because you'd press the uh, press everything twice and the first lot would be kind of big you know not big beer but ale with a, a a bit of a heft to it and the second lot would be small beer so it might have half a percent or one percent alcohol but people knew that it was um it was safe to drink do you think there'd be a market for 
you know, a restaurant providing that Welsh breakfast. And, and beer. <laughs> You're obsessed with that Welsh and, breakfast. Yeah, but, but combine that with beer. Small do, beer, yeah. Do, do you know well, something? I think, I think, and this is my, my, my first post lockdown, uh, voyage. I think that, uh, hotel or pub still exists actually Does it? in 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 but in bala in wales yes oh, God, so by whether it does or not i'm not sure whether it serves that breakfast i don't know so to, to move to something much more austere for a second um almost depressingly austere and sort of very lockdownish carrot of fire has a question yeah Good it's name. a great question um it's a great name so tom and dominic but i think this question is open to you as well well since you're on the program um <laughs> could you elaborate on the origins of the sandwich and that is a good question because it's not really invented by the earl of sandwich is it is that just a myth well Myth and a myth with, with some truth in it. I mean, I think the myth bit about the Earl of Sandwich is that he was a gamer because his biographer says that he actually worked very hard. He was probably just at his desk. But people obviously always had bread, meat, cheese, put them together. If you think about what a sandwich needs, it needs a really, it needs good bread that doesn't fall apart. That It needs a really sharp knife to cut it well. It needs something to cut the middle stuff well to put it together so actually people would have been eating those component parts in the fields agricultural workers you know just forever but they'd have never called it wouldn't have been a sandwich they'd have had a hunk of you know a hunk of bread and a a crust of bread and something else you know in their their hands so and probably yeah so I, i don't know if he invented it but he definitely popularized it um i think it's probably safe to say so that's a historical myth that's true yeah that's great. But before we do that, can I ask a pair more questions? Yes. Can I jump in one more question? If there's one thing from the past that you would like to bring back as a staple, you know, not as a treat, but as something that we don't eat enough of that we used to eat, what would it be? Cock a pig, surely. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> With beer. Uh, yeah. I think it's probably mutton. Um, oh. It's slightly odd how we've moved away from mutton. We're obsessed well, we're not actually even obsessed enough with lamb. You know, we have however many sheep, 36 million sheep in these aisles and we don't, we're not actually eating that much lamb, but we seem never to eat mutton any longer. But the New York Times says we do. Yeah. It says we do eat The New York Times said that all we do is eat mutton. Well, they they were running some ludicrous story, weren't they, saying British cooking has moved on the days of (laughs) Of eating mutton. Five years ago when they had boiled mutton and, and gruel. Um, but it's part of the New York Times' campaign to do down Britain, as you know, Tom. That's <laughs> very low. Okay, yeah. Penn, he's, he's off. I really think we've got to stop at this point. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. That was oh, great. Thank and you so really much for having me. It's yeah. whetted my appetite. I might go and have, well, I don't know what I'm going to have. I might go and have going at your cock a or whatever it's called. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go, and, go and roast some mutton stuffed with oysters. <laughs> and Penn's book, uh, just to repeat, is Scoff, A History of Food and Class in Britain. It's brilliant i swallowed it down in a couple of evenings and the sunday times critic on the back says it's sharp rich and superbly readable vogler reveals why we eat what we do today and it is fascinating and i think that sunday times critic was dominic so it must be true thanks ever so much bye-bye thank you bye bye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
www.thepeopleshow.com. 